My name is Karen Nielsen Sains. I'm professor of clinical pediatrics at UCLA at the David Geffen School of Medicine. In this podcast today, I will be speaking about my presentation at ID Week on Zika virus and lessons learned from Rio de Janeiro. My session is focused on congenital Zika virus infection and how the epidemic struck Brazil with a virus that was essentially unknown until that time and how the epidemic moved in Rio de Janeiro and infected pregnant women and what we learned from these pregnant women we studied with Zika virus. Essentially, we formed a cohort of women who were pregnant, who were PCR confirmed as having Zika virus infection during several trimesters of pregnancy. And we followed this cohort of mother-infant pairs actually until the present time. So we have about three years of data on Zika virus exposure in infants and what manifestations are present. When Zika first reached Brazil in 2015, up until 2016, when there was this epidemic, little was known about this virus. It was known that it was an arbovirus, it was a flavivirus species, that it had come from Africa and then gone to Asia and then reached Latin America, but absolutely nothing was known about the teratogenic potential of this virus. At the time, what was happening was that there was this boom of cases of microcephaly that first occurred in northeastern Brazil and over several states, and it was an exceedingly high number of children being born with uh, microcephaly, which essentially means a small head. And this prompted the scientific community to wonder what in the world was causing this to happen. And they knew that there was a virus that had recently appeared in Brazil that was causing a dengue-like illness with a rash and very low fever, which actually distinguishes it from dengue, and some other symptoms. It was a short-lived clinical presentation. The, the disease in itself was pretty benign for the most part, but nevertheless, it was unknown of any other potential side effects of this virus until you know this link was identified or potential link. At the time, it was even so concerning that people weren't sure if it was the virus that was behind this outbreak of microcephaly or if there were any other teratogenic exposures in the environment. So this was a big debate early on, but it was clearly identified that these cases of microcephaly were happening where these cases of Zika were occurring and that they were almost happening simultaneously. There had been an epidemic there and nine months later, we're seeing these children being born with these malformations. And so that was how it first started. The virus reached Rio in mid-2015 to the end of the year. And in early 2016, children started being born also in Rio de Janeiro with microcephaly and other central nervous system malformations. There were calcifications. There were all sorts of other problems being born. Some of them were severely crippled by this condition with having contractures and all other sorts of malformations. So when this happened, I had a long-standing collaboration at Fiocruz, and we had been collaborating before in other arboviral studies. And I had a colleague there, Dr. Patricia Brazil, who was actually investigating this new condition. And we decided to evaluate uh, what was going on. Most of the women at that time, they were still pregnant, but we had ultrasound data on very ab abnormal central nervous system malformations in these children. So we started looking at that 
and we wrote a manuscript describing ultrasound data of women who were definitely positive for Zika virus during pregnancy in either the blood or the urine. So in the first study, the cohort was formed in, in this way. Women would come in, they, they reported having a rash during pregnancy, their blood and urine were drawn and were tested by PCR for Zika virus. And if they were positive, they were followed prospectively as were their infants for, for their outcomes at the time of birth and beyond. If they were negative for Zika virus, usually another agent was identified. For example, there, were some, there was a simultaneous outbreak in Rio at the time of chikungunya virus, which could cause similar symptoms. So some of the women were identified as having chikungunya, others were identified as having other conditions. But essentially, we, we focus on the women who were Nika virus PCR positive. So our first report, we reported data on ultrasound data primarily. Just a handful of infants had been born at that time. And then we followed up with the second report, which was published about nine months later, reporting on outcomes of the children who had been born to these mothers with Zika virus. So those were our first two initial publications. And what we saw was that there was a very high number of central nervous system malformations in in this cohort of of children. There was a, a high number of infants that had eye malformations, primarily retinal um, scarring, retinal findings. There were children who had hearing deficits followed over time. In that time, we were in a hypervigilant state, really looking at what possibly could be associated with Zika virus in, in this cohort. So we also reported functional abnormalities. We had a high number of infants who had seizures, who had deficits in gaining weight. We had children who were small for gestational age. So with this data that came from Rio and also data that came from other parts of Brazil and other case reports, even from the United States where patients had traveled to areas where Zika was endemic and returned, there was a very uh, compelling argument that Zika virus was definitely behind this new identified syndrome and it was responsible for a congenital infection. So, so that was the first lesson, major lesson learned is that Zika virus is a flavivirus that is very teratogenic if acquired by pregnant women. So, so that was the major lesson. And second, what were these malformations and, and what was the potential for the virus to cause these malformations? So certainly the central nervous system was the first affected system by far. There were multiple very malformations characterized not only microcephaly, which interestingly was not the most common problem in Zika virus. In our initial cohort, it was only 3% of the children who had microcephaly. And when we followed children longer over time and more children were enrolled, the numbers were about 4%. So we never had an astounding huge number of microcephaly cases in our cohort. But we saw other central nervous system deformities as well. And we have published a couple papers evaluating what are these abnormal brain imaging findings that we can see in Zika virus. We also follow these children for with repeated eye exams over time and hearing assessments were also performed periodically. We've been following these children now for about three years. More recently, we have focused on the neurodevelopment of these children. In one of our manuscripts, we looked at the association between neuroimaging findings 
and neurodevelopment. And we did see that there is definitely an association. Of course, if you have a very severe central nervous system abnormalities, you're going to obviously have poor uh, neurodevelopment. But we wanted to focus also in more subtle manifestations of Zika, not the ones who have the very dramatic malformations that everyone recognized. But if a child is, is born and looks apparently normal, will this child be guaranteed a normal neurodevelopment later, uh, even though there was Zika exposure in utero. So this is also something that we have focused on. We have seen in our cohort in initial evaluations that approximately 15% of the cohort will have either significant central nervous system malformations or problems, or they will have eye abnormalities or hearing abnormalities, mainly hearing deficits. But when we looked at the neurodevelopment of a cohort of children with Zika, we actually saw that over 30% of the children had some degree of below average neurodevelopment. What we have really identified and one of the main lessons learned is that a child who looks normal at birth, if there is Zika in utero exposure, definitely this child needs longer term follow-up because even in the absence of apparent central nervous system malformations, if a child looks normal, but that does not guarantee a normal neurodevelopment. This child could have below average development, and it's important to identify these children very early because you can put in place some remedial interventions to actually improve their cognitive function and improve their development. So that's one of the main lessons learned. Another very interesting lesson learned is that Zika is a very difficult virus to diagnose, especially in endemic areas where it co-circulates with dengue, for example, because Zika is also a flavivirus, and it cross-reacts, there's serologic cross-reactivity with the other flaviviruses. So in Brazil, for example, where most of the population has been exposed to one of the four dengue viruses, they will have antibodies against dengue. And if you do a serologic test when someone comes in with symptoms to see if they have Zika or not, there will be cross-reactivities. It's really hard to discern between both infections, at least by serology. So serology is not good in that setting. The other resource we have is performing a molecular test, which would be RNA-PCR test to identify the virus. What happens is that you don't excrete the virus for very prolonged periods of time. So you have excretion in the blood during a short period, usually not longer than two weeks for most people. And then in the urine, it could be present for two to three weeks as well. But if, if in a pregnant woman, if you don't have the availability of PCR or if you don't pick her up in the acute period in which she has the infection, you might not identify the virus. We also found that IgM responses to Zika virus are short-lived and don't continue for beyond six months or so in, in, in the studies we've done. So that's also one of the situations that puts us in a difficult situation when we talk about infection versus exposure. It's also very hard. That's why I'm saying that these children were exposed to Zika, determining the true infection rate in infants you know, it is difficult too, for exactly the same reason. They might not shed the virus long enough in their urine or in the blood for identification, and the IgM responses might be delayed or might be short-lived, and we found evidence of that as well. So these are most of the lessons we've learned. I mean, it's, it's a totally new disease as, as it has been identified, and, and so we are learning as our patients age, and, and we are looking for repercussions of Zika. 
Another interesting finding that we have seen is that their children who actually are born without microcephaly but can develop microcephaly over time. We saw this happen in a small, very small proportion of children, and that was described by, by other researchers as well. There's more than one type of microcephaly. You can have a disproportion of microcephaly, which is the classic microcephaly we've seen in most of the reports for Zika, where a child has a normal body weight and length but has a very small head. And you can also have proportional microcephaly in which the child is very small and the head is also very small. So the body and the head are proportional, but when you look at head circumference rates and definitions, this child also has microcephaly. So there are two different kinds of microcephaly. So in Zika, you can have children who are born very small for gestational age because of fetal growth restriction. In those situations, the babies are small and they can be microcephalic. We can also have the situation in which the babies have a normal birth weight and birth height, but their heads are very small. So not all microcephalies are, are made equal. The children who will have proportionate microcephaly might have a better chance of outgrowing their microcephaly and doing well, even though we did a study that shows that even the children with proportional microcephaly will not do so well, even if they outgrow their microcephaly. So that can also happen. It's more complex than we have observed. Another interesting feature that we learned from Zika is that Zika can cause fusion of bones, especially in the skull. So uh, craniosynostosis, which is the name for this, can actually be present in children affected with Zika, and that can also be a contributor to microcephaly as well. What I think is important to underscore is that people think, well, Zika's gone, it's not a problem anymore, and that is in some ways misleading because Zika is still happening. There have been outbreaks, for instance, in Angola, there have been outbreaks in India, there have been outbreaks in Asia and in other parts of the world. And the fact that there's not a massive epidemic and sporadic cases here and there, you know, distracts people from even thinking of the diagnosis and the possibility that, that it can still be a problem. And with global warming and the fact that now this new virus has been introduced in areas where there, you know, where's the vector, where you have the Aedes aegypti mosquito, it's a big problem because we will be seeing sporadic outbreaks here and there. So I do believe it's something that we have to pay attention to and, and focus on for the future. Just because a child doesn't have microcephaly really doesn't exclude the diagnosis of Zika and we should be vigilant. I think we have to develop better diagnostic assays for identify Zika and actually identify some sort of surrogate marker that could indicate past infection. There are um, cumbersome tests that can be done for identification of Zika, like plaque reduction neutralization assays, and we've, but they're primarily for research purposes and they don't fit well with the clinical scenario. Um, they have been used in many studies and, and we actually use that in, in some of our own studies, but it's not something that can be easily performed. So there is a, a push towards uh, identification of better assays for Zika, and, uh, and that is helpful. And the other thing, which I won't really touch too much on the lecture, but there is an effort to develop uh, vaccines against Zika, which hopefully will work and prevent, you know, 
this catastrophe that we saw uh, a few years ago. Whether there will be interactions with dengue or not, that remains to be seen. We definitely know that prior dengue infection and immunity does not protect against Zika virus infection. We're still learning to, to as our cohort of patients age and as time goes by to see if uh, actually Zika immunity protects against dengue. We had some signal that that might be the case, but that remains to be confirmed. But definitely the reverse is not true. Dengue does not protect against Zika, and we saw clear evidence of that because nearly 88% of the women in our cohort had, had prior antibody to dengue virus. So we know that was not the case. So there are many things that we still need to learn, but as our patients age, we will, we will probably find more solutions to the problem. Thank you for listening today. For more information about my session, please click the links below.